The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Donald Barthelme's The Balloon from 1966 is one of the strangest and most enduring short stories to come out of the second half of the 20th century. Marked by Barthelme's wild imagination and playful wit, The Balloon represents for many the work of a postmodern master at his postmodern peak. But who was Donald Barthelme? Why were The Balloon and his other stories so popular? And are these postmodern stories of interest merely as a reflection of their era, or do they still have meaning for us today? Mike Palindrome is here to discuss Donald Barthelme and The Balloon on today's History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We've got a great show lined up today. Our resident president, Mike Palindrome, is here right from the start. Mike, of course, is the president of the Literature Supporters Club based on the Isle of Manhattan. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, we're going to be talking today about the short story master Donald Barthelme and listening to his story, The Balloon. But first, I have a surprise for you. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, we got a special request from a listener. He wants us to dedicate an episode or two to a particular author. I'm going to read his email without divulging the name, and I'll have you guess which author he's referring to. Sound good? Okay. I just opened up a beer, so I'm ready. <laughs> Don't guess the name until I finish the email. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, wait. Before we begin, I also have to fix an error from our last email writer. She was from Nova Scotia, and I mentioned that it was the land of Anne of Green Gables, but <laughs> apparently not. That set off a firestorm. Anne is from Prince Edward Island, which is near Nova Scotia, and the residents of PEI have basically threatened to burn down my studio unless I correct the error. So my apologies to everyone in PEI and to the gods of literature. <laughs> okay, here we are with the email. Uh, Dear Jack, it begins, I am Hassam from Iran. It is nice writing to you. I have been enjoying your podcast for quite some time now. I am a musician. I am a piano teacher. I commute a fairly long distance to get to where I teach, so obviously I listen to your great podcast, wishing that I will never reach my destination. I have two first loves, music and literature. I studied music, but never literature. I'm self-taught in that field and can never get enough of it. Anyway, I wanted to beg you for something. Could you and Mike do an episode on blank? I am literally in love with the man. Am I the only person in the world who thinks he is a giant genius or what? Everyone should always be talking about him. He has such a sharp mind, such a keen sense of history, and he is such a deep thinker on the human condition. And his theories on the art of the novel don't even get me started. You want to teach someone what a novel does? He is your guy. The way he analyzes great authors, the things he sees in them in relation to the history of the novel is pure wisdom. The feeling I get when I read him is shock. I am shocked at his intelligence. Please, please consider doing an episode on him, maybe even two. Say hi to Mike for me. And then he says in parentheses, I love how he says, hey, Jack. <laughs> Yours, Hassam. Okay, Mike, don't answer yet. But tell me, mm -hmm. do you have an answer? Do you have a guess? I 
kind of do. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back to see if you get it right. back mike which author do you think hassam would like us to cover i'm gonna say nabokov oh <laughs> is that right no it's a good <laughs> guess there was one clue one uh-huh. particular clue his theories on if you had read the email you might have guessed his theories on the art of the novel and the art of the novel is capitalized oh ian forrester nope Art of the novel. John Gardner? Nope. I don't know. You're going to kick yourself when I tell you. (laughs) Okay. Milan Kundera. Ah, right. (laughs) So I think that definitely should go on our list. I'm a big fan, and I think you're an even bigger one, although you seem to have forgotten his book, The Art of the Novel. But that will be prominent in our episode on, or episodes on. Yeah. No, we should do it because the book of laughter and forgetting kind of changed my life. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? I think I was 15. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not not to make, not to set it up too much. Yeah. I don't think I read Kundera until, uh, yeah, until I was maybe 20. Maybe you had put me onto him. I feel like maybe I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So my thanks to Hassam and to all our listeners and Patreons and other supporters. And now let's turn to Donald Barthelme. This one was your idea, Mike. So before we listen to the balloon, who was Donald Barthelme and why does he matter? Well, he has a lot of titles. Mm -hmm. The the king of postmodern fiction, the king of American short stories, I I think of him always as just this refreshing breath, um, th- this breath of fresh air, and mm-hmm. and um, I think he has uh just the most original voice. Mm. And um, I had a writing teacher say that if you can't write something good in two pages, how can you write a novel? And I, I think of that sometimes because Bartholomew, in a paragraph, he accomplishes what, you know, people, you know, try to do in a novel. Yeah. And I mean, he has his limitations too. I, I, I was reading in an interview, they asked him about, you know, are you working on a novel? And he said, um, I've made a lot of false starts. I've tried to write a novel. I have something called The Emerald, which is about a witch who is impregnated by a man in the moon and gives birth to a 7.335 carat emerald. That was going to be a novel, but I couldn't sustain it. And it finally appeared as a long story. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's save that until after we really start digging into the balloon, because that is an interesting 
uh, topic of whether his style and his sensibility is is served by a longer form and and where the we think the obstacles might be to stretching it out into a longer form agreed so any other thoughts before we uh jump into the story here i i'm I'm gonna urge listeners to be uh patient Mm. and stay with it i think there's (laughs) it's only i've read it it's only 12 minutes long (laughs) i i I remember the first time i read it i think my (laughs) eyes started to glaze over and um right and then thank god i stayed with it (laughs) oh i was gonna ask this too a lot of people uh, when they ask for a Donald Barthelme episode, have requested the short story "The School" uh-huh. as the one. There's a couple others that are also as famous, but um, I know we've talked about the school. I think in our episode on great literary endings, you might have brought it into that. But is there any any thoughts about the school before we turn to the balloon? I don't want you to spoil the balloon, but are there any? Any reasons why you didn't want to take the school or anything about the school, if people are more familiar with that story that will help us understand yeah. the balloon here? I, I mean, I guess, you know, I've read a lot about the school. I've read the school a number of times. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, with his fiction um, and any kind of like high concept fiction like Borges, you more than any other type of short story I think criticism does it a disservice. Mm. I mean, the school is 1,200 words or something. I mean, it, it's just worth reading. So yeah. what, I, what I tell people is just read it. And if you tell me that you hated it, it was only 1,200 words. <laughs> um, and so that's my recommendation. Which so is go just, read just, it. Just go and, ahead and read it. And know? then maybe it's one you don't need to analyze with anyone else, or you can analyze it with a friend, but you don't need the uh, the full yeah. History of Literature podcast treatment to yeah. uh, further your I mean, enjoyment of I it. I mean, one of the most interesting things about the school is the ending, and I love the ending. And so I think that that is worth discussing, and we can we, we can discuss it, but... If you've never read the school, you you can only ruin it by talking about it. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, so we'll send people to go read the school at their leisure, and yeah. now we will uh, turn to the balloon. The balloon, beginning at a point on 14th Street, the exact location of which I cannot reveal, expanded northward all one night, while people were sleeping, until it reached the park. There I stopped it. At dawn the northernmost edges lay over the plaza, the free-hanging motion was frivolous and gentle. But experiencing a faint irritation at stopping, even to protect the trees, and seeing no reason the balloon should not be allowed to expand upward, over the parts of the city it was already covering, into the airspace to be found there. I asked the engineers to see to it. This expansion took place throughout the morning, soft, imperceptible sighing of gas through the valves. The balloon then covered 45 blocks north-south and an irregular area east-west, 
as many as six cross-town blocks on either side of the avenue in some places. That was the situation then. But it is wrong to speak of situations, implying sets of circumstances leading to some resolution, some escape of tension. There were no situations, simply the balloon hanging there, muted heavy grays and browns for the most part, contrasting with walnut and soft yellows. A deliberate lack of finish, enhanced by skillful installation, gave the surface a rough, forgotten quality. Sliding weights on the inside, carefully adjusted, anchored the great, vera-shaped mass at a number of points. Now we have had a flood of original ideas in all media, works of singular beauty as well as significant milestones in the history of inflation. But at that moment, there was only this balloon, concrete particular, hanging there. There were reactions. Some people found the balloon, quote, interesting, end quote, as a response this seemed inadequate to the immensity of the balloon, the suddenness of its appearance over the city, on the other hand, in the absence of hysteria or other societally induced anxiety, it must be judged a calm, mature one. There was a certain amount of initial argumentation about the meaning of the balloon. This subsided, because we have learned not to insist on meanings, and they are rarely even looked for now, except in cases involving the simplest, safest phenomena. It was agreed that since the meaning of the balloon could never be known absolutely, extended discussion was pointless, or at least less purposeful than the activities of those who, for example, hung green and blue paper lanterns from the warm gray underside in certain streets, or seized the occasion to write messages on the surface, announcing their availability for the performance of unnatural acts or the availability of acquaintances. Daring children jumped, especially at those points where the balloon hovered close to a building, so that the gap between balloon and building was a matter of a few inches, or points where the balloon actually made contact, exerting an ever-so-slight pressure against the side of a building, so that balloon and building seemed a unity. The upper surface was so structured that a landscape was presented, small valleys as well as slight knolls or mounds. Once atop the balloon, a stroll was possible, or even a trip from one place to another. There was pleasure in being able to run down an incline, then up the opposing slope, both gently graded, or in making a leap from one side to the other. Bouncing was possible because of the pneumaticity of the surface, and even falling, if that was your wish. That all these varied motions, as well as others, were within one's possibilities in experiencing the up side of the balloon was extremely exciting for children, accustomed to the city's flat, hard skin. But the purpose of the balloon was not to amuse children. Two, the number of people, children and adults, who took advantage of the opportunities described was not so large as it might have been. A certain timidity, lack of trust in the balloon, was seen. There was, furthermore, some hostility. Because we had hidden the pumps which fed helium to the interior, and because the surface was so vast that the authorities could not determine the point of entry, that is, the point at which the gas was injected, a degree of frustration was evidenced by those city officers into whose province such manifestations normally fell. The apparent purposelessness of the balloon was vexing, as was the fact that it was there at all. Had we painted in great letters, Laboratory Tests Prove, 
or 18% more effective on the size of the balloon, this difficulty would have been circumvented, but I could not bear to do so. On the whole, these officers were remarkably tolerant, considering the dimensions of the anomaly, this tolerance being the result of, first, secret tests conducted by night that convinced them that little or nothing could be done in the way of removing or destroying the balloon, and secondly, a public warmth that arose, not uncolored by touches of the aforementioned hostility toward the balloon from ordinary citizens. As a single balloon must stand for a lifetime of thinking about balloons, so each citizen expressed, in the attitude he chose, a complex of attitudes. One man must consider that the balloon had to do with the notion sullied, as in the sentence, the big balloon sullied the otherwise clear and radiant Manhattan sky. That is, the balloon was, in this man's view, an imposture, something inferior to the sky that had formerly been there, something interposed between the people and their sky. But in fact, it was January. The sky was dark and ugly. It was not a sky you could look up into lying on your back in the street with pleasure. Unless pleasure, for you, proceeded from having been threatened, from having been misused. And the other side of the balloon was a pleasure to look up into. We had seen to that. Muted grays and browns, for the most part, contrasted with walnut and soft, forgotten yellows. And so, while this man was thinking sullied, still there was an admixture of pleasurable cognition in his thinking, struggling with the original perception. Another man, on the other hand, might view the balloon as if it were part of a system of unanticipated rewards, as when one's employer walks in and says, Here, Henry, take this package of money I have wrapped for you, because we have been doing so well in the business here, and I admire the way you bruise the tulips, without which bruising your department would not be a success, or at least not the success that it is. For this man, the balloon might be a brilliantly heroic, muscle-and-pluck experience, even if an experience poorly understood. Another man might say, without the example of blank, it is doubtful that blank would exist today in its present form, and find many to agree with him or to argue with him. Ideas of bloat and float were introduced, as well as concepts of dream and responsibility. Others engaged in remarkably detailed fantasies having to do with a wish either to lose themselves in the balloon or to engorge it. The private character of these wishes, of their origins, deeply buried and unknown, was such that they were not much spoken of. Yet there is evidence that they were widespread. It was also argued that what was important was what you felt when you stood under the balloon. Some people claimed that they felt sheltered, warmed as never before, while enemies of the balloon felt or reported feeling, constrained, a heavy feeling. Critical opinion was divided. Quote, Monstrous pourings. Harp. XXX, XXXX, certain contrasts with darker portions. Inner joy. Large, square corners. Conservative eclecticism that has so far governed modern balloon design. Abnormal vigor. Warm, soft, lazy passages. 
Has unity been sacrificed for a sprawling quality? Quelle catastrophe. Munching. People began in a curious way to locate themselves in relation to aspects of the balloon. I'll be at that place where it dips down into 47th Street, almost to the sidewalk, near the Alamo Chili House. Or, why don't we go stand on top and take the air and maybe walk about a bit, where it forms a tight, curving line with the facade of the Gallery of Modern Art. Marginal intersections offered entrances within a given time duration, as well as warm, soft, lazy passages in which... But it is wrong to speak of marginal intersections. Each intersection was crucial. None could be ignored. As if, walking there, you might not find someone capable of turning your attention, in a flash, from old exercises to new exercises, risks, and escalations. Each intersection was crucial. Meeting of balloon and building, meeting of balloon and man, meeting of balloon and balloon. It was suggested that what was admired about the balloon was finally this, that it was not limited or defined. Sometimes a bulge, blister, or subsection would carry all the way east to the river on its own initiative, in the manner of an army's movements on a map, as seen in a headquarters remote from the fighting. Then that part would be, as it were, thrown back again, or would withdraw into new dispositions. The next morning, that part would have made another sortie, or disappeared altogether. This ability of the balloon to shift its shape, to change, was very pleasing, especially to people whose lives were rather rigidly patterned, persons to whom change, although desired, was not available. The balloon, for the twenty-two days of its existence, offered the possibility, in its randomness, of mislocation of the self, in contradistinction to the grid of precise rectangular pathways under our feet. The amount of specialized training currently needed and the consequent desirability of long-term commitments has been occasioned by the steadily growing importance of complex machinery in virtually all kinds of operations. As this tendency increases, more and more people will turn in bewildered inadequacy to solutions for which the balloon may stand as a prototype, or rough draft. I met you under the balloon on the occasion of your return from Norway. You asked if it was mine. I said it was. The balloon, I said, is a spontaneous autobiographical disclosure having to do with the unease I felt at your absence and with sexual deprivation. But now that your visit to Bergen has been terminated, it is no longer necessary or appropriate. Removal of the balloon was easy. Trailer trucks carried away the depleted fabric, which is now stored in West Virginia, awaiting some other time of unhappiness, some time, perhaps, when we are angry with one another. Okay, Mike, so you picked the balloon as a story. The way you put it, you said it has, quote, a lot of meat to it, end quote. So what's going on here? Why did you choose it? First off, it's it's one of these mystery stories. Mm. 
where you know at, at the very start yeah um i think the narrator says like something like that's not where it was supposed to be or that's not where it started yeah he says yeah. beginning at a point on 14th street the exact location of which i cannot reveal right and so i you, i underlined you, you, that and and said why can't he reveal it what's there uh -huh. is there danger here what's who is he is he a mad scientist a billionaire so that was right right in the first sentence you're right yeah so you get this sense that he the narrator is behind it Mm -hmm. Um, and then as the description goes, I mean, people are playing on the, on the balloon. They're kind of like hanging stuff off the balloon. They're kind of having a good time. And, mm -hmm. and it, I guess lurking in this story is, well, what the hell is this thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's what I meant by staying with it. I think there, there were a couple of moments where I was just like, well, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, what is the point of this story? Yeah, it's true. You you sort of read it a few times before you can really, uh, yeah. the the balloon becomes familiar enough that you're not struggling to just try to figure out from the description what exactly it's supposed to be. Yeah, so I, I you know, I've come to love that. I think the first time I read it, I felt like it was um, a bit of a trick. But mm -hmm. now I think the second I agree with you. It on multiple readings, it um, it, it it's really a sensational story. Um, the the way uh, there are these like little uh, turns where you think, okay, this is the way people think about anything. This mm -hmm. is you know they they either try to have fun with it or they're suspicious or you know. They're trying to like, you know, make it even better than it is, and they they put their dreams on it, and so the balloon becomes this, grows more and more as a symbol, and then you get the ending, which, right, you know, is that it was, it was this guy's like, personal balloon. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have now walked through maybe all four. I I said there are four things about this story that uh -huh. I thought it was doing. So maybe I should walk through those four and then have you tell me what else I missed or um, you can comment on the four points along the way. Uh -huh. Okay, so here's what I think the story's doing. The first one I think you've already captured, which is uh, the balloon itself as an object described. It's like a, it's like a, a, a brief description, although in the context of the story, it's, it's pretty substantial. But it's, yeah. it's like a poem or something that just is describing this beautiful thing. It's this beautiful, strange thing, the way you describe the ocean or a sunset or a red wheelbarrow or a space shuttle or something. It's just, it's like the power of description of this object that kind of excites the imagination all by itself. There's no plot, there's no character, it's just the object is interesting. I think it's well done and it kind of makes me think and I, I enjoy spending five minutes or so just imagining this balloon. So that's that's a plus for the story, I would say. 
Then the second thing you've already touched on, which is the crowd and the and the population's reaction to it and the city's reaction to it, which again is interesting and it's sort of the heart of the story, I think. I think that's what most of the criticism and the commentary that I've read on the story says is how it it shows us the way people will respond to something like that. And there are a few parts I like. It's really dreamy and soft and the people love having it around, especially those who are stuck in their lives and don't like change. And I like the the children jumping up and down on it and the way people are going for a walk on it and they and they start to uh, use different aspects of the balloon to market, you know, mm-hmm. in, their, in their conversations with one another. They'll say, I'll meet you on that part near, you know, where the ridges come or, or they have some description of it. It's almost like it's become a uh, an interesting feature of the landscape and they immediately adopt that. But this also was where I was starting to pull away from the story a little bit because I'm mm-hmm. not sure I agree with how the people react. And the part that really drives me crazy is the authorities, <laughs> where the authorities just sort of say... Oh, it's big. We can't figure out where it's coming from. We will run some secret tests and realize that we can't take it down. And the people kind of like it. So, okay. And Mm -hmm. to me, that part feels like a real dodge because I don't know what things were like exactly in New York in 1966. Mm -hmm. But today, it's unimaginable that the people in power wouldn't say, this is a mm-hmm. threat we have to destroy. And then they would probably use it to either make money somehow, or they would mm-hmm. uh, use it to seize power for themselves somehow. They would accuse their political rivals of not taking the balloon seriously enough, or they would there would mm-hmm. be lies about the balloon. So maybe I'm just cynical in today's uh, modern world, but uh, or maybe his point is maybe they were cynical then too. And Bartholomew's point was, wouldn't it be nice to be in this fairy tale where this is how the humans would react? But I just felt like I don't know. It maybe it was opening up me up for debate, but for some reason that part was really irritating to me. I think it's meant to irritate you. Yeah, I guess that that's the the way I think of it is that. His surrealism in a lot of his stories, um, there the, this there are surrealist parts I love, like in Me and Mrs. Mandible, where the thirty-five-year-old goes back to sixth grade. Mm-hmm. There's like a clerical error, and he's sent yeah. to sixth grade. <laughs> that's a, that's, and that's one of si- his great stories. And he's sitting at this classroom <laughs> desk, and he falls. He, he gets a crush on the sixth-grade girl, and. You know the the setup and a lot of the stuff in the story is is great, but there's stuff in that story where you just feel like a little irritated mm. because it's like either too surreal or you know it's like the same surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I I'd like to think that Bartholomew kind of does that on purpose. Yeah. That yeah. You know, you know, surreal is not meant to um, satisfy you all the time. I think, you know, and I, I think of the difference between visual art and literature. Like, um, I don't find visual art very, surreal visual art very funny. Surrealism isn't very funny. I think that's maybe like a part that 
Bartholomew developed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. He seems to have responded in a way. So he's writing in the 60s. He's got as his predecessors Borges and Beckett and people who are advancing a kind of postmodernism that Barthelme came to represent, but they're not nearly as playful. They're oftentimes, yeah. it's a dry humor, but it's not as, I almost felt like like they might be Johnny Carson and he might be David Letterman. You know, he's he's mm, almost yeah. in the world where everything can be a joke and and you would almost be afraid to take things too seriously. Although as a as yeah. a as a literary author, he'll tack on seriousness and he'll treat serious subjects. He's not writing about he he hasn't completely stripped that away. But uh I'll give you an example in from the balloon. There's a part where he talks about this, another man might view the balloon as if it were a part of a system of unanticipated rewards. And then he gives an example, and he says, here, Henry, take this package of money I've wrapped for you. Like, who mm -hmm. who, who wraps up a package of money and gives it to an employee? It says, because we've been doing so well in the business here, and I admire the way you bruise the tulips, without which bruising your department would not be a success, or at least not the success that it is. And it's Okay, so his job, I guess, is to bruise tulips, and that's kind of a funny idea for a, an absurdist kind of job that you're someone sitting around bruising tulips all day. But I also felt at that point like I wanted it to be a little more, a little less cutesy and a little more, I, <laughs> I want this yeah. to... I want it to mean a little more. We have this beautiful balloon. This idea, this balloon is, is all the way uh, hovering over Manhattan and changing the way people see the sky or don't see the sky. And and here we are in this little. Uh, it's almost like he couldn't resist making the, the bruised tulips joke, which doesn't really do anything other than makes us kind of smile and chuckle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess that that's a good transition to his his obsession with style and formalism. Mm -hmm. You yep. know, and it was interesting. I was reading that his father, who was a, a an architect and very well read and into the avant garde, yeah, uh, in terms of like liter literature as well as architecture. He and Donald would argue yeah. about literary forms, and in an interview later, I I read that Donald Barthelmey said, um, you know, people misuse the word avant-garde because the advance guard is sent ahead in a battle solely to sacrifice themselves to preserve the status quo. <laughs> <laughs> so the term avant-garde itself makes no right. sense that people are like, oh, this is avant-garde art. Right. <laughs> so and I thought that was very telling. But, mm. I, you know, it's it's a, it's amazing to imagine someone writing fiction in their, you know, early 20s arguing with their father. Yeah. Uh, about, you know, what literature, how it should be written. Yeah. And they were a very artistic family. Yeah. I mean, he was... He, at age 30, so he was born in 1931, and in 1961, he became the director of the Contemporary Arts Museum in Houston. 
And wow. he yeah. was a, a newspaper reporter and a magazine editor. He he started the magazine Fiction. He and he, of course he published all kinds of stories in the New Yorker, including the Balloon, which I think we've mentioned, but it's from 1966. And his younger brothers, Frederick and Stephen, who were quite a bit younger, 12 and 16 years, but they also uh, were successful fiction writers. And his father, as you mentioned, was an artist, and they used to argue, and he doesn't seem to have uh, ever really accepted Donald's fiction. That yeah. he, he always objected to the style of it, but not just in the kind of way you might expect of, Oh, why don't you write a why don't you write a nice book like Henry James? Now there's a real author, but it was really more of a he got what what Donald was trying to do, but he objected to that being the particular response in that particular time period. It was a very informed objection to Donald's fiction. The, there are people who say that um, writers, you know, develop and grow and mature, and um, other people have said Barthelme is one of these writers that just kind of was born fully formed mm-hmm. and that, you know, his stories that he so much enjoyed his form of writing that he never changed, but he had the skill and the insight to just start right off the bat in this kind of style. Yeah. And, I and mean, then I, he I, wrote over a hundred stories. It's almost like, yeah. Each story was like a thought that he had or a, an image that he started with or something, and then he played it out. But he seemed to, he does seem to have known uh, just how long it should be and just what he needs to make it work and what he needs to, you know, insert. You get the feeling, I've never heard about his writing process, but you get the feeling that a lot of these were, you know, he did in a, a, a sitting or two. Yeah, I mean, the interviews with him are really fun because... Um, I mean, he was a good friend of Grace Pally, yeah. and he was part of this writing scene, and you can imagine that he was really kind of the life of the party. I was reading an interview with him, and he was saying that, you know, he loved Kafka, and he was uh, he, he was fascinated how Kafka was really into Yiddish theater, uh, and, and he said there's so much to be kind of learned from Kafka, and he thinks of Kafka because whenever you're in like a, a setting and there are rules you're supposed to be following and then there's like this crevice that opens up where you, you just realize you can't follow these rules and he says the confusing signals, the impurity of the signal gives you verisimilitude as when you attend a funeral and notice against your will that it's being poorly done. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that that, yeah. that is just Bartholomew, you know." To, yeah. To, to, I mean, you you can do that any any moment in the day, just like going throughout your day and just seeing these like strange like openings. Yeah. You know? And that, I mean that 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 feels like the, that's the way he wrote. Every sentence is almost like an opening. You know? Yeah. Kafka is a great comparison, and. There are some Kafka stories that are very have really amped up the humor, but if you take sort of his more famous works where the the jokes don't come with every sentence, it does seem like Bartholomew is he's kind of accentuated that side of Kafka. Yeah, 
Kafka's as funny, but Bartholomew will say, well, what if a whole short story was that funny? What if we played around with it even more and and sort of treated it with the playfulness? I mean, I guess to put Bartholomew in the best possible light, you could say that that was his response to the particular era that he lived in. You know, this is kind of the catch-22 generation. This is the the guys who were young. He was... T- just too young to be in World War II. He was, I guess, 14 when it ended. But then he was drafted to go to Korea, and he was sent to Korea. He got there. The day he got there was the day that they struck peace, and so he was never in combat. But uh, this is kind of then heading into Vietnam, and it's sort of that era of it's a huge boom time, and its prosperity is all over... America, but it's also, you know, they've also just seen the atrocities that humans are capable of and that dictatorships are capable of. And so it is a time where maybe being absurdist or surreal kind of makes sense in a way. We should do an episode on Catch-22. I I just reread that recently. Mm. Um, And it it really holds up. Yeah. And someone Uh, just sent me an email. Uh, Is there a... There's a new movie version, I think, coming out. What? Really? Yeah. Catch-22? Yeah, which, uh, that was a huge flop, right? Yeah. The first time it came out, but I guess they're, I guess they're remaking it. Okay, so I was on a list of four things. So we've (laughs) talked about two. The third Mm -hmm. thing I had, we should definitely touch on before we end this here, because it is the ending. So the third thing I have is the narrator's relationship to the balloon and mm-hmm. the lover. He's very secretive about it at the beginning. We sense that there's some danger involved. And then we learn at the in the final paragraph that he's done this whole balloon, uh, mm-hmm. this whole project for a lover who has been away in Norway. And mm-hmm. he calls it an act of autobiographical expression, which is a, <laughs> a phrase I really liked. Then he's going to put it away. He's suggested he's mm-hmm. going to save it for hard times. I don't know. I I thought it was kind of a an interesting way to wrap up the story to give it that little twist, but yeah. it's not. Uh, I wasn't particularly moved or impressed by the romance here. It's not exactly Elizabeth and Darcy or anything like that. I I I think it's it shows that this guy is very superficial, yeah. and I related very much to this kind of like desperate act <laughs> in a relationship. Uh, I mean, not that I've, I've yeah. not that I've done anything like this, but yeah. I just think it, th- this is the old, like getting on your knees and half a dozen red roses and, and the, you know. the boom box over your head standing outside yeah. the window and the, uh, Oh, yeah. I'll make a mixtape that will show you, uh, how, how much I, uh, yeah. how strongly I feel. I want you to listen to this. And think yeah. about how much I love you and how much you're going to... Yeah, I guess that's I it's guess like that's it, right, it, yeah. You blew up this pathetic balloon and made everyone <laughs> take notice of it. Yeah. You know, like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, so. And then he has it all packed away and sent off to a warehouse. And he's like, maybe I'll pull it out again when we're arguing or... Yeah, in West Virginia. He packs it into <laughs> a warehouse in West Virginia. <laughs> okay, so the fourth thing is the whole kind of postmodernism, the meta aspects of this, the fact that a story could be about this balloon, that you could 
I, yeah. I was kind of tongue in cheek when I said it's not exactly Elizabeth and Darcy. I guess the whole point of a story like this is that you sit down, you open up a magazine or an anthology, you turn to a story, you're reading fiction, and yet you're not getting, you know, the breakfast table where the daughter enters and the father is is mm-hmm. uh, thinking about marrying off the daughter and we're getting obstacles and characters falling in love and meeting and discussing the world and all that. We're getting that love can be expressed in a balloon, this crazy flight of fancy, something unexpected. And fiction is stretched out by stories like this, that it can cover more than we expect. Fiction can inflate. We could use a lot of balloon metaphors for what fiction is doing here. And, <laughs> and maybe, you know, when you mentioned the this is the great act of a lover who has this crazy idea for how he's going to, you know, win over this woman and, and does something that is actually kind of uh, overdone. You know, a lot of fiction writers have probably done that, just like a lot of uh you know, rock band members wrote a song or a lot of, uh, there is something romantic or maybe I should say romantically doomed about young people writing fiction to impress people or, or impress a particular person. Yeah. And I I think we have to say something about how this is an attack on symbolic fiction. Hmm. And right. the whole idea that fiction has to mean something. Yeah. And I think he you says know, he has a, specifically, yeah. Yeah, he has a number of stories that I think are really pointed critiques of um, trying to find meaning in fiction. I mean, you, you, you know, I think of David Foster Wallace. Um, there's a chapter in The Pale King, his unfinished novel, where each character is this, uh, a number of characters are described as turning a page mm. and it goes on for like 30 pages and it literally is like, you know, Jack Wilson <laughs> turns a page, Mike Palindrome turns a page, like, um, you know, uh, Donald Barthamay turns a page and turns two pages by accident. So turns a page back. And I think that, you know, chapter is this attack on, like, what does the story mean? Like, yeah, like here you go, right? You know, and so this story, I, I, I always feel like is this like, oh, you know, there, there's like this lovely bread being baked one day. Like, what does that mean? Oh, of course, it's like the domestic hearth and you know the marriage gone awry and yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I enjoy that the, the, the stupid balloon. Um, it seems to mean nothing. And then at the end, it actually was like some personal <laughs> you know, project. Yeah. You know, I wonder because this, a lot of writers from this period struggle with this and they get irritated by it and they get angry by it and they, they end up having to put it in their fiction to basically yeah. say, stop interpreting this. Like, I know how you're going to interpret this and don't. Or, you right. know they they're they're really uh they're wrestling with the readers on that point and nabokov was a huge one for this he hated freud he hated the way that symbols mm-hmm. would be read and and all of that and and you understand the frustration but what's interesting is i don't know that authors today really have to have that fight because i don't think readers are just as immersed mm-hmm. in fiction and and in the in the forms of fiction, 
you know, yeah. a handful of people are, um, you being one of them. But, mm -hmm. you know, if someone is trying to write something for The New Yorker, uh, they're probably not expecting their readers to be looking to impose a real interpretive reading on it in a, a critical yeah. theory kind of way. They're they're looking, they're, I think writers assume that the readers are just smart and, and maybe well-read, but are willing to take a story and just read it as a story without putting that overlay of, of critical theory on top of it. You, you can feel in your gut that this story is philosophical without really having the vocabulary. And I, I think that's, and that's in a way, this story is different from other postmodern stories where, you know, you may not get it, but uh, you may not get it. And then it's closed off to you. This story, you may not get it, but you, you, you can still enjoy it. Mm. That, that I'd argue that. One more thing before we go. I'm going to give you a uh -huh. quick quiz. Uh -huh. So this is an interview that he gave in the early 70s. He named, uh, Bartholomew named several writers whom he admired or who had been particularly influential for him. He ended up naming mm -hmm. 20 writers. And I'm going to see if you can name three. And there was one in particular that I'll give you uh, double credit for because he said uh, he he uh -huh. cited him as foremost among his predecessors. All right. Well, I'm gonna guess John uh, John Barth. Yeah, that's one. I guess Joseph Heller. He is not on the list. <laughs> um, William Gass. That's two. Okay, and then I, I all right. I gotta try to get the guy who. Uh, <laughs> um. Boy, I, I feel like he, I read in an interview that he said Henderson the Rain King is mm. Bellows' uh, homage to Hemingway. And I, I don't know why I never realized that before. And then it became so clear Yeah, yeah. when I was thinking about that. And then I uh, read that um, Bartholomew was a huge Hemingway fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So is that on the list? Uh, it is not on the list. <laughs> okay well um i'll give you a hint uh mm -hmm. we have mentioned three of these authors already today oh okay um three of them so nabokov and nope <laughs> kafka kafka yes that's on the list <laughs> two others oh so you've already gotten your three okay so i'll uh i'll give you the others we've mentioned today were grace paley Oh, right. And yeah. the number one, the one mm -hmm. he cited as foremost, was Samuel Beckett. Oh, right. And he yeah, said, I'm enormously impressed by Beckett. I'm just overwhelmed by Beckett. As Beckett was, I speculate by Joyce. Uh, yeah. Some other interesting names on the list. Uh, S.J. Perlman, which I think is, you know, the oh. wordplay and the, and the wit. Gertrude Stein sort of the fearlessness, I think, of her innovations. Mm -hmm. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Pin, uh, Thomas Pynchon. Right. Uh, your man, uh, John Ashbery. And I won't go through all of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll say a couple of others. Uh, Rimbaud was mm -hmm. apparently an influence. Uh, Anne Beattie, which is interesting. And Walker Percy. Mm. Wow. 
Okay, so let's leave things there. You did very well on that quiz, Mike. Sometimes we've we've thrown <laughs> some things at you and you've drawn a blank, but uh, or you've fired off blanks. But this one was uh, you had a, a very successful uh, successful answer rate on that one. I want to throw in that if people enjoyed the balloon and school, that there there's some real uh, gems in his collection, 60 stories, mm, yeah, including, uh, I just read for the first time, Rebecca, mm. which is about a woman named Rebecca Lizard, who, you know, in keeping with her name, has green, kind of greenish skin. Mm-hmm. It eventually bothers her lover, the greenish skin. So <laughs> it, 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 it comes up into a big confrontation. So... <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. But there, yeah, there's some, I mean, me and Mrs. Mandible, which we mentioned, and uh, A City of Churches this is another one I really like. So, Okay. Good recommendations. Okay, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for joining us and to Donald Barthelmay for blowing all of our minds with his outrageous and wildly imaginative fiction. want to thank you as well for joining us. I know we have a lot of good shows coming up, so subscribe now so you don't miss them and tell all your friends, all your Twitter friends and Facebook friends. You could just tell them all. <laughs> Sign up now. We've got Milan Kundera coming up, Joyce Carol Oates, Alfred Hitchcock. That'll be a fun one. David Foster Wallace, part two. Jeffrey Chaucer and Dracula as you've never heard him before. Oh, and Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. We have a lot of good shows coming up. So stick with us. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.